Ari Rosen. I'm here with another fun-filled episode of that 401k podcast. Uh, this week's topic, we're going to talk about 401k issues that uh, really could use some guidance from the uh, from the federal government. Um, you know, things that are still up in the air, and we probably could use some um, regs or laws and whatnot to clear up some misconceptions and debates within the retirement plan space. But of course, first things first, that 401k uh, site.com for further information on all, all our live events, January 26th, 27th, National Virtual Conference, two days of uh, a few hours each of uh, presentations and whatnot, $2.23 to be part of it. We're adding uh, sponsors and providers left and right. Uh, should be a lot of fun and hopefully we'll have an agenda in a couple weeks. Uh, of course, our live events will be in Oakland on April 14th, Detroit, May the 3rd. Uh, and around that time, we'll be in Arlington, Texas, and hopefully we'll have some dates. We have discussions about two venues, but, you know, we have to stave that off until the new year, um, which I can't believe will be 2023 already. Uh, Milwaukee, we're going to try for September. Uh, and that should probably be it. June, we're trying to get a, a New York locale for a New York event. We haven't done that since the uh, MetLife event in New Jersey in 2019. So it's been quite some time since we've um, we've done that. I mean, it, you know, when you think of the pandemic and how many years ago these things were, um, I, it's just hard to believe the uh, national event uh, we did at Disney is going to be three years this March. Um, which uh, the first and last time I've done a national event, and I think the idea of uh, you know trying a national event in the middle of you know right when a pandemic starting uh, was a bad idea. But uh, uh, go to that foreignkeysite.com for further information on the events. Detroit and Oakland registration is up. We're adding uh, again plant sponsors, plant provider sponsors to that. Um, and of course, let's get to the topic. Can uh, been a risk attorney for 24 years. Uh, 2023 will be 25. I started on September 8th, 1998, working for a law firm called Berman Sussman Forsetter, which was essentially uh, two of the guys. Berman Sussman owned a TPA called Mobius Tech. So there was this ancillary law firm that I was a part of and drafted the plan documents and and whatnot, and uh, they always say, you know, you should like what you do, and uh, I really enjoy being an arrest attorney, um, you know, I've always had an interest in, in investments and whatnot, and it goes hand in hand with that, and talking to a lot of financial advisors, and um, it's always been a fun part of it, you know, I got, you know, the, the, again, you, you should like what you do. And I, I've always enjoyed what I do. Um, you know, the part of working for law firms, I didn't enjoy doing. So I don't, you know, it's been 12 years since I haven't been doing that. One of the things I love about ERISA, uh, aside from other parts of the law, is that there's, it always feels like there's definiteness. There's, you know, determinability. Um, when you have litigation, uh, you don't have that. I think as a law student, you think that, you know, if your side is, the law is on your side, you should win. And sometimes that's not the case. Uh, I remember um, being involved in litigation over a contractor in my house and we were, we were suing them and 
we got a negative decision um, from a Supreme Court judge in New York, New York uh, Supreme Court, that's the lowest court of the law, uh, lowest court in the state of New York, this is the Supreme Court. And the law was on our side, and but it doesn't matter, the judge just didn't apply the law and we had to go to the appellate division and get that reversed. And, um, you know, there are some areas within the retirement plan space that I just really wish that the government would just, like, give us that definiteness that uh, we've been craving or I've been craving. And, um, you know, the first part of it, self-directed brokerage accounts within 401k plans. Uh, I've always been negative on it. Um, I always had that running joke that only attorneys and accountants and, and, and doctors had these type of arrangements. Um, it was a running joke until it really came out to be true, most of them. And I've never been a fan of it because um, I've seen that studies show that plan participants do a lot better with the core fund lineup than they do with gambling within a self-directed brokerage account. That's how I see it, gambling. Listen, I have my own brokerage account with SoFi and Fidelity. And if you look in those assets, you know, you got mostly index funds and a couple of stocks and, uh, you know, mostly decent companies. Um, Coinbase is the one big uh, screw up of mine uh, where I'm down probably like 75, 80%. But, you know, most people don't have my kind of, you know, philosophy of investing. Um, people are a lot riskier with investments. And it's never been clear to me that plan sponsors are fully protected from liability for the losses sustained by plan participants within a self-directed self-directed brokerage window. And, um, you know, I always joke about the one participant who would put in all their money in on a double-inverse Chinese ETF. Because I always kind of find those double-inverse ETFs kind of funny. These are like crazy bets on where you think the markets are going to move. It's like, to me, trading on commodities. Or trading on options, and uh, there's nothing, nothing definite, you know, that says that a plan sponsor is exempt from liability. And um, a plan sponsor is a plan fiduciary, and they're fiduciary of all plan assets. They can't pick and choose. The, you know, they they are also fiduciary of the you know assets within a self-directed brokerage window. And you know. If somebody says to me, there's, there's nothing that says you're, you know, you got to get out of jail free card like they have a monopoly, uh, this is one of the reasons I just don't like the idea of them. Uh, people make bad choices. Um, plant participants especially make bad choices. Um, we have a lot of, you know, crazy bets on crypto. We have crazy bets on AMC theaters, which, you know, for, for a time was doing very well with those people on Reddit. Uh, I just don't like the idea. And, and again, you know, until there's something definitive, I'm still going to have my doubts about plan sponsors offering them. And there's, of course, a whole host of other problems with self-directed brokerage accounts. I was talking about the time that I worked at the, at the law firm, and I knew there were self-directed brokerage accounts, and I was never offered them, which is a problem with benefits, rights, and features. And then, you know, the only people that had them were law firm partners, 
And then the law firm partners wanted their brokers to work on the plan. So it's just to me, it's like, who needs this trouble? Um, and that's how I see it. And of course, you know, um, plan sponsors are still going to add these brokerage windows because, you know, this is what the principals of the company want. So, you know, I'm not going to say, no, you can't do it. They can do it. It's just, I think that until there's something cleared up, I I'm just not going to go for it. Uh, speaking about brokerage windows, and I hit it, crypto, um, you know, timing is everything in life. And uh, I understand that, uh, you know, the, the plan providers that are putting out crypto uh, windows with their 4K plans, we're planning this out when crypto and Bitcoin was $69,000. Now it's around 16 and change. When I wrote the article about this that I'm basing my podcast on, it was around 17. It's got wild swings, Bitcoin. And we're not talking about the, you know, the, the crappy coins, the FTX coin and, uh, you know, the shit coins as they call them. Um, you know, they're just volatile investments. They're unregulated. Why would you put them within a regulated environment? Um, you have, you know, issues on cyber theft. I mean, people, there, people have been hacked. Um, you know, we have the FTX disaster, which is, is still playing out. Uh, my wife, who, you know, doesn't know a thing or two about crypto is just fascinated by the story. I think we're all fascinated by car crashes and um, disasters of, of this kind. And, you know, I think when the story plays out, he's going to put Bernie Madoff to shame um, in terms of the uh, craziness over this. And, uh, you know, minting your own coin, it seems to me that he was just minting his own coin to, to, to just, you know, pilfer assets from uh People were investing with uh, the exchange. And, you know, I, I think with FTX, you got issues with Binance and all these other uh, exchanges and whatnot. And there's a problem, obviously, is, you know, for a 401k plan, having a crypto wallet, because this is not something you could store at Fidelity or Vanguard in terms of a regular custodial account. It's a digital asset. What happens? You get a plan provider out there or exchange, and you have the wallet with them, and they freeze your account because they're involved in this FTX mess. Um, it's just, you know, this is just a dumb idea. This is a solution looking for a problem. And again, I'm not one of those fuddy duddies who doesn't involve, who thinks Bitcoin is some kind of Ponzi scheme. I have money in Bitcoin. I have one Bitcoin now. Um, I have a couple of, a uh, couple of shekels in Ethereum, uh, Bitcoin cash. And so I'm not a fuddy duddy who's against, you know, digital assets. I just think that I'm all for, you know, Bitcoin as investment, but do it outside of a 401k plan. You know, you're a plan, plan sponsor, what you do with your own money is one thing. What you do with, you know, someone else's money is quite the other. And yes, there was a bulletin that, uh, you know, showed the DOLs thinking that they're completely against uh, Bitcoin uh, and other crypto assets. Um, and we understand that they're obviously negative against it. They basically said they will audit plans and plan providers. This bulletin is subject to a lawsuit right now. But um, until there's definiteness, and we don't have that definite. We have a compliance bulletin where DLS frowns upon it, but frowning upon it and saying you can't do it are two different things. So that's 
really one area, another area that where I think, you know, we could be helped out by the Department of Labor of just, you know, clamping down and saying, you know, this is what we should do. Next on the hit list, pool plan providers and the preparing transaction rules. Uh, I still would want to see something definiteness about who can be a pool plan provider and who can't. Can a TPA be a PPP and, and avoid the perfect transaction rules? Can the PPP and the plan sponsor be one and the same? I just think that, uh, you know, there still needs to be some clearing up as to who can do what. And uh, this is someone who's, you know, a PPP himself. But I'm also not the TPA. Um and, you know, that's that's how I see things. Um, you know, the, the, the pooled employer plan problem um, really was the law was changed in 2019. And the effective date was January 1, 2021. There was this little thing called the uh, COVID pandemic. Uh, it took a while for the Department of Labor to get to that pooled plan provider registration. I want to say I want to say it was about six weeks before the effective date of PEPs. So there's still a lot of things that still should come out of uh, PPP. Uh, you know, uh, it reminds me of the funny line in the movie Naked Gun: "Like a blind man in an orgy, I gotta, I gotta feel my way around." And I still think that there is a way for the Department of Labor to feel their way around PEPs and the pool plan provider as to who can be it, uh, you know, the ramifications, perfect transaction rules, and, you know, answer once and for all. And, and we still don't have that definiteness. We have proposed exemptions, but it just, I don't feel like it comes far enough. Last but not least, one of my favorite topics. Um, I, I've mentioned it quite a few times. Uh, it's dealing with the deconversion fee and, and other fee disputes. Um, I always remember that TV show, The Real World. Everything's, you know, everything's great until you start fighting and then it becomes real. Um, that was the, along the lines of the intro for every season. I think I quit after uh, San Francisco. So I don't, you know, or maybe Seattle. I, I think Irene slapped one of those guys uh, before she, you know, left the show. But outside of that, I, I just stopped watching. You know, I, I had a life, you know, uh, work and, and kids and all that stuff. And um, everything with a plan provider usually goes well until you fire them. And when you fire them, they, they take these things personally. Um, you know, and, and when you, 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 you fire a plan provider, and I, I always think that that's when you see the knives come out. And um, mostly the disputes occur with a third-party administrator. With a plan advisor, less so. But I, I've seen disputes get ugly. Um, the problem with fee disputes is that the TPA, you know, I, I, I'll get into trouble for saying this, but I, I still don't think that a TPA should charge a deconversion fee. A deconversion fee, you know, I, uh, I fire anybody else in this business or in life. I don't pay a fee for it. <laughs> I, I just, you know, if you move from one attorney to the other and people say, well, yeah, there's, you know, TPAs will say, yeah, there's work involved. Okay. So build it into your fee. Because you're hired to be fired. Um, it, it's nothing personal. People get fired all the time. I've been fired uh, quite a few times. Um, 
not that many times, but but enough. And, and you know, most of the time it's not personal. Change in the business, company goes out of business, was bought out by somebody else. Um, you know, I had a really good um, company where I was doing work for uh, medical devices, and they got bought out. Um, I took them from my old law firm. Uh, they jumped to me, and I did work for them, and they got bought out by somebody else. Um, it happens. Um, I didn't charge a fee for it. <laughs> you just give the file up, and that's it. Um, you know, the, the problem with the, the deconversion fee is, is most of the folks that charge one don't really fully disclose it. It's not part of the, the initial contract. Um, I understand why, because, you know, you don't know how the plan's going to how big the plan is going to be and whatnot. But, you know, when we live in an environment of full fee transparency, the idea that you're not going to disclose an iota or an idea of how much you're going to charge is problematic. And I've talked to one of the biggest players in the 401k plan business, a really well-respected executive. And he said to me, because I, I did have a dispute with one TPA in particular, most disputes with a TPA surround that deconversion fee and, you know, termination costs. And, um, you know, most TPAs will charge a reasonable fee and, and some won't. I remember working at a TPA and the guy in charge, who I couldn't stand, uh, he, he would decide the deconversion fee based on the advisor to the plan. So if you had, if you were a plan sponsor and um, you were uh, working with an advisor who had lots of plans with us, you would get a lower fee than somebody who didn't. So plan sponsor or, you know, the advisor, that's the only plan that they had on, on our books, they'd pay a higher fee. And, uh, you know, the problem with, you know, the, the deconversion fee is sometimes these TPAs, again, will take things personally. Um, you know, kind of like how Michael was when his father got shot. You know, that's what Sonny was telling him. You're taking things way too personally. Um, you know, the problem with, uh, you know, the ones who take it personally, uh, they really have planned sponsors over a barrel. They're going to charge an exorbitant fee. Because they think they can get away with it, uh, they you know refusing to cooperate with successor TPA that that's a, that's a whole whole problem. You know I again I, I tell about my experience uh, working on a, on a MEP, um, you know 120 million dollar MEP. We paid these folks 130 thousand dollars in fees. We terminated their services as of February 28th, 2021. We paid them annually. Uh, the contract annually stated they would provide us the fifty-five hundred and the vowels. So I paid that. We paid them. The plan paid them. I didn't. One hundred thirty thousand dollars. So uh, the TPA, they were upset, um, and, and the, the they, they were upset because the advisor said that one of the reasons they, they fired, that we fired the TPA was because uh, the TPA was sending uh, letters to our adopting employers um, asking about 316 services. And, and I'm the 316 on the plan. The advisor took exception to it. But anyway, um, 
We pay them on an annual basis. In my opinion, if I pay you for 2020, you're going to do the 5,500 in the vows because I paid for it or the plan paid for it. TPA said, no, no, no. You know, you fired us February 28th. We don't have to do the work anymore. And if you want us to do the work, we're going to charge you 80 grand. I said, 80 grand for 5,500 valuations? I said, next time, bring a gun. You have a better chance. And uh, needless to say, I was not going to pay it. I was not going to let the plan pay it. We moved. And uh, it's been part of a dispute um, with this TPA, with the Department of Labor for the last couple of years. Hopefully there'll be some sort of decision from the DOL on what the heck they're going to do. But, you know, I still think that it's one of those abuses in this business that has been allowed to continue um, until people like me say, no, we're not going to pay it. Uh, and unfortunately, most plan sponsors, you know, aren't ERISA attorneys in practice um, and, and aren't going to pay it. And I think that one day the DOL is going to do something about it. And maybe it's uh, my complaint to the DOL. And the funniest part of the, my complaint with the DOL is apparently I wasn't the only plan sponsor who made a complaint. So hopefully something will get done. Um, you know, I, I hope <laughs> there are no guarantees in life. Uh, so we'll, we'll see what happens. But I, I really believe that that is one area that the Department of Labor is going to, you know, change its views because it, it's just becoming too much of an abuse. Too many plan sponsors don't know what they should be paying and what they should not be paying. And um, that's my two cents. And that is going to conclude this episode of that 401k podcast. This week I got to record two episodes going to Tampa on Christmas Day. So uh, a couple days from now we'll be recording another episode and hope you tune in. I think next week's topic is going to be on New Year resolutions for plan sponsors. Since 2023 is upon us and we'll talk about New Year's resolutions and how I really don't make any except that one time. Uh, and I actually kept to it. But anyway, um, go to that 401ksite.com for further information on all our live events. And uh, we hope you tune in next week for another episode. And take care. Merry Christmas. Happy Chinooka. Uh, happy Kwanzaa. And, uh, and all that other stuff. So take care. Bye.